Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lion of the tribe of Judah, you who were dead and live forevermore, you have the keys of death and hell. You are the one whom all angels adore, and with them and all the company of heaven. We praise you. We magnify you. You are worthy of all the glory. We bless your name now and forever. Amen, amen. and amen. Bless the Lord. Let's be seated together. A joyous Easter. My name is David Cassidy. I preached here February 21st. Last and since then, you called me to be the new senior pastor here at Spanish River Church. Thank you. Thank you. It is such an honor to be with you on this, on this Easter morning. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful we can gather together and worship the Lord. My phone started blowing up a little bit earlier this morning with the Romanian side of my family. Uh, as they do every Easter morning, calling and shouting at the top of their lungs in the phone, Christos Taviat, which of course is Romanian for Christ is risen, and then we all have to answer Taviat Kaviat, which uh, he is risen indeed. I won't try to teach you Romanian this morning, but it is part of this global anthem, two billion voices raised around the world this morning, affirming the truth that the apostles bore witness to, that the church has testified to across the centuries, continents wide, across the oceans, that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. So let's join our voices with all of those billions others and praise his name. I'll say Christ is risen you know what to answer. Let's do it loudly and shake up hell a little bit this morning. Christ is risen. I think that shook him up a little bit. That's very good. Bless the Lord. I want to celebrate with you today. We affirm today that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. This is not something we view as a myth, but we believe it is an historical an objective, physical reality that Jesus Christ, having died for our sins on the cross and having been buried, was on the third day raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Never to know death again because he was raised immortal. It's an utterly indifferent kind of resurrection. It means that his body was transformed and that his resurrection is a preview of coming attractions. In his resurrection, we see our own. It's a completely different kind of resurrection. Jesus raised people from the dead, but they died again. I always felt a little sorry for Lazarus, to be honest. Had to go through it all over again. But when Jesus was raised, it was because death could not hold him in its power, and he says the same spirit that raised him from the dead gives us new life and will raise us from the dead as well. Jesus Christ was raised on the first day of the week so we could be raised on the last day of history. Thanks be to God. Amen. And when that occurred, it changed everything. It changed it all over the world, and it has gone on changing things for 2,000 years. One of the people, it changed. Those moments, that event in history was a man named Peter, and he wrote a letter about that event to other Christians so he could tell them what a difference this event makes in our lives. And you can follow along with me here in 1 Peter chapter 1, 
I'm going to read from verse 3. Uh, we'll pick up some of the rest of it a little bit later, but look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We've been born again, Peter says, to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. If we've ever needed to affirm and celebrate all that the resurrection means, it's this Easter. Just think back to last Easter. Think of the journey from last Easter to this Easter. Last Easter, hardly anyone could gather in churches anymore. But here you all are, and there are more yet to come. Thanks be to the Lord. But during this journey, there's been sorrow, there's been grief, there's been pain. All of these things have been the shadows that haunted us. Ernest Becker, who wrote The Denial of Death, said the fear of death is what haunts the, what he called the human animal more than anything else. That was true in the ancient world too. The Romans, you know, and the Greeks, they didn't have any problem believing in life after death. Let's be clear. What we're affirming today is not simply continued existence after death in some kind of disembodied spiritual way. What we're affirming is that God raised Jesus bodily from the dead. That's not something that the Romans and the Greeks were even interested in. They regarded the body as kind of a prison from which you should escape. But if resurrection had occurred, if the Hebrew prophets who saw those bones you sang about a little bit earlier, rattling and shaking together and then coming alive, Ezekiel saw a valley of bones, God saw an army. When, when, the, when the Lord did that, when those prophecies of resurrection came to pass in Jesus Christ, that meant that the future, the resurrection, had invaded the world, had invaded the present, and was starting things all over again. A whole new kind of existence was coming into being. Death itself was being defeated, and the good news of that shook their world. The average life expectancy in Rome at the time was 21 years of age. Now, it's not that people didn't live into old age, they did, but it was very rare. Infant mortality plague, disease, famine, starvation, these things along with violence that was inflicted on people because human life was simply regarded as cheap. All of that plagued that ancient world. And then suddenly came this shattering message that the grave, which had captured so many of their beloved, the grave was defeated. Not only had sins been forgiven, but the grave's power had been broken. It changed the world, and it's still changing people today. There was no one who needed a change more than Peter. The very first thing the resurrection does, you see, is change our past. You may have been drugged to church here this morning. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands on that. But Peter, the Scripture says, ran to the tomb. He ran there. And no wonder. Think about it. Think about everything he'd just been through. His fear, his cowardice, his denials, 
his bravado. Oh, Lord, if everybody forsakes you, I'll be with you right to the end. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out my sword. I'm going to chop. He chopped that guy's ears off. He didn't chop his ear off because he was aiming for his ear. Let me tell you, he missed. He was going to be the guy who stood every test. And he collapsed under the weight of the interior infection the scriptures call our fallenness, our sin. And when it came down to it, there was betrayal, there was denial, there was fear. I don't know him. And he said it with a curse. And then he saw Jesus carried away to the cross. Can you imagine? He couldn't have even looked his fellow disciples in the eye, given that sense of failure. Can you imagine what he must have thought? Jesus, gone, and I've utterly and completely failed him. Well, we've all had our denials. We've all had our betrayals. We've all had those moments where our interior lives collapsed under the weight of our own fallenness. If we're honest with ourselves, we know that we need a new start. There's an old proverb that says, dance like nobody's watching. But then it goes on to say, email like it'll be read in a deposition. <laughs> because here's the thing, you can, you can clear your browser history, but who's going to clean your conscience? You see, every single one of us have a past. It's just like Peter. So what does that mean for us? What did the resurrection mean? Why did he run to the tomb? Because it changed what his death meant. He wasn't a victim. He wasn't just a victim of some great act of injustice. There was, in fact, a deeper mystery going on. Something else was taking place. The shedding of blood by the Lamb that would take away all those sinful failures. When you think of symbols of the Christian faith, you might think of a cross or a dove, or maybe one of those fish that people stick on their car. Probably some of you have fish stuck on your car this morning. Maybe you have an entire school of fish going along there on the back of your car. But one of the ancient symbols of the church is a rooster. You can see it on lots of ancient Christian art. And, and I don't see anybody with rooster stickers on their cars these days. But why a rooster? Well, you remember what Jesus said to Peter? Peter, all your bravado, all of your brave statements that you're never going to forsake me, you'll never deny me, I'm telling you, you'll deny me three times before the rooster crows in the morning. The rooster crowed. The rooster was a symbol of this, that before that rooster crowed, Peter denied him. That's how the morning started. That morning started with Peter in sin. But Sunday morning came with Peter forgiven. He ran to the tomb. I want you to know because Jesus Christ died and has been raised for your justification that your past has been addressed. Our past has been addressed and every single one of our sins are forgiven. Lady Macbeth, having committed murder, looked at her stained hands and said, Out, out, oh damned spot, can the done be undone? And everything in our world says, you can't undo the past. There's no hope. Sit there in your shame. But Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, says, I have borne all your shame. I have taken all of your punishment. I am cleansing your conscience with my blood. I am giving you new life by my Holy Spirit. Because I've died and because I've risen, you are forgiven people. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. What good news we have today. Our past has been changed. But it's not just our past that's been changed. Our present has also been changed. Think about it. 
you have now been brought from death to life. Now, there are some people who will say that what it means to be a Christian is you never have any more trouble. How many of you have found that to be untrue? Like if you've been a Christian for longer than two hours, you figured that one out. That actually what takes place is if you are a believer in Jesus, sometimes it means you have more trouble than other people. Not only do you have the trials of your own heart, your own temptations that you deal with, the daily afflictions, but Christians like everyone else suffer. We suffer financial hardships. We suffer physical diseases. We face death. There is suffering that Christians endure, and sometimes Christians suffer even more. Why is that? Well, Peter addresses that. Peter is writing to Christians in the first century who are themselves a suffering community of people. They are undergoing significant opposition to their fledgling faith. And he says, you're going through a fiery trial. Yes, you've been moved from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. But don't for a minute imagine that while we go through this life in the present, it means that there is nothing bad that will happen. No, in, in 1 Peter here, if you look at it in verses 6 and 7, he says, in this you rejoice, this new hope, this new birth that you have, though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is, here's this phrase, tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that phrase? Tested by fire. The Christian goes through tremendous testing. The Christian goes through fire. Our souls, our bodies, our families, everything we're doing is by God's mercy passed through these purifying places that cause us to put our trust in him. That's God's objective in it. Of course, the enemy has a different objective. I've watched COVID and cancer kill people, but COVID and cancer try to kill faith as well. So that when people see their suffering, they go, God, what are you doing? Why are you taking me through all of this? Why are you making me endure all of this? You're not being kind to me. You're not being fair to me. When we say those kinds of things, when we think those kinds of things, we're forgetting how merciful God has been to us in Jesus in dealing with the thing which is our greatest need, the forgiveness of sins. When four friends lowered a paralytic down in front of Jesus, Jesus looked at that paralyzed man and he said, your sins are forgiven. He dealt with his first and greatest need. And then they grumbled and said, how does this man have power to forgive sins? And then he said, then he did the miracle of healing to show that he had the power on earth as God incarnate to forgive sins. But Jesus always deals with our first and greatest need, which is the forgiveness of our sins. He has shown us great mercy. But here's the second thing we forget. When a Christian suffers, as Peter teaches, you and I are also in our own suffering, showing the world the sufferings of Jesus. And my friends, you and I as a church have been passing through fire over this last year. And there are people, doom and gloom prophets, who are saying that the, the church is finished. That it's over. That all we have in front of us is decline. But a rolled away stone tells a different story. It says something entirely different. I'm an F1, Formula One racing fan, and last year at the 
Bahrain Grand Prix, the last race of the season in the first lap, about the seventh turn, a French driver named Romain Grosjean drove his car at about 140 miles an hour through a barrier. It broke the car in two. It ruptured the fuel tank. It erupted in flames, and no one thought he'd survived. No one thought anybody could survive that fire. But 45 seconds later, he stepped out alive into life. And he said he felt like he had a whole new life. I'm telling you, in this last year, the church has gone through a fire, but it is stepping through those fires in the presence of Jesus. He has been with us in it, and we're going to come out on the other side without even the smell of smoke upon us. And the best days of the church of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel here and around the world are yet before us. You and I have so much to go and live for right now. He's with us in the fire. He's with us in the trial. It changes everything about the present. He not only changes my past, born again to a living hope through the power of Jesus Christ's resurrection. With me because of the resurrection hope that I have. But having changed my, my present, he has also now given us a different future. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, he says, look at it again, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to, here's the purpose of the new birth, here's its ultimate end, to an inheritance that is imperishable, watch these three words that describe your inheritance, imperishable, undefiled, and unfading kept in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Notice your inheritance. This is your inheritance in Jesus Christ because he's been raised from the dead. This is about your future. Now you may have this morning some thoughts about an inheritance you have coming. I'm not going to ask whether or not you're hoping for that inheritance. That would be a little unseemly. You may be counting on that inheritance, but you know, it could be adjusted. Whoever puts you in the will can take you out. But here's what God says. I've written your name in my book, and I'm not going to erase it. You have an inheritance. What I'm doing in you right now is simply the down payment through the Holy Spirit on what is ultimately going to be yours because we don't live only for what's going on here and now. You and I, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, have a future. We have what he calls here a living hope. Now, when you and I use the word hope, we tend to use it about things we'd like to see happen, but we're not sure they're going to happen. Like, I hope the Cubs win the World Series. <laughs> not any response at all. Which means that I hope they don't play the Marlins in the playoffs because that would be the death of them. They, they kill their cub killers. Some of you hope that Miami University wins the national title in football. See, I thought I'd get a couple amens. I thought I would. Others of you are hoping for FSU and still others for UCF and some for Florida. And, but we all know FAU is going to win the national title. We all know, Go Owls! We all know that. So your hope is in vain. But when the Bible uses the term hope, hope, it never uses it about something that might happen. No, it says there's something coming in the future 
that is rooted in an historical reality. I started by telling you the resurrection is not some myth we believe. It is a physical, tangible, objective, historical reality. Whether you're talking about Tacitus or Pliny, the Roman historians who both testified to the fact that Jesus Christ was crucified under Pontius Pilate or others we could name, there's no reasonable doubt, as Simon Gathercole, the Cambridge historian, said that Jesus Christ lived and died. The larger question, Gathercole says, is whether Jesus Christ died and lived. And on that question hinges history. And here we have eyewitness testimony to the fact that he was raised. He ran to the tomb. He wasn't there. But then Jesus came to where Peter was. And he showed them his wounds. And his very first words to them were, peace to you. I'm giving you a new life, erasing your past. I'm going to be with you in every fiery trial. And I am going to give you for all eternity, an inheritance. I have it reserved for you. You cannot see any rise or fall on your inheritance. You don't have to track it with the Dow Jones results. This thing cannot be taken away from you. I bought it. It's paid for with my blood, and it's yours forever. I'm giving this to you. It is based in the resurrection. This future hope is based on the past reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. So do, how do you view the future? Do you look at it as a place of hope? Now, of course, you could say, well, that's going to make me so heavenly-minded I'd be no earthly good. Quite the contrary. In a recent article in The Atlantic, New York pastor Tim Keller, along with his wife Kathy, Talk about his diagnosis with pancreatic cancer, that death will take him sometime in the next few years. And he said the reality of that had made them go deeper on their faith, and they, they realized that they began to appreciate life, all the little things in life, this world is showing them precisely because they are focused on the life which is yet before them with Christ in heaven. C.S. Lewis, that wonderful literary scholar, put it this way, if you aim at earth, if you make seeking first the kingdom of this world your highest priority, all of the possessions, all the acquisitions, all of the financial prosperity you can seek, all of the affluence, all of the power, if you make the earth your aim, you will lose heaven and earth. But if you make heaven your aim, you will gain heaven with earth thrown in. Because this world is beautified by our eyes being clarified from sin and death and decay through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what it means to have a living hope. For us, the future is bright because Christ has secured it for us. But what about you? Do you have that living hope? When I lived in Oxford, I used to walk every day down St. Giles Street. There was a plaque in the road. Uh, on a building there in the road. The plaque wasn't in the road. The plaque was on a building in the road on the wall. And it said, um, it was sort of a, you would see these numerous times in England and behind the wall, somebody was buried because, you know, they bury them in the walls and bury them in the street, burying people everywhere in England. And um, so here's this plaque there on the wall. I walk past it every day. 
And on the plaque were, was written an exhortation from the person who'd been buried there. It says, remember me as you pass by, as, I, as you are now, so once was I. Right? <laughs> and then he said, prepare for death, you follow me. And then some clever undergrad had evangelized it by spray painting underneath it one morning when I walked past by, to follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> there is a great divide that comes. Jesus Christ will come again. You and I may be alive to see that day, but even if we're not, he will come for us. Do we long for that day? Do we long for the hope of eternal life? That's what's been given to us. Not only is our past forgiven and our, our present filled with his presence, but our future is secure because we've put our trust in him. There are many people who have affirmed this. Some of the most thoughtful people you could imagine. I know some of you may be thinking, I don't need a new birth. I know there are people who need a fresh start. They're homeless. They're broken. They, they have lots of needs. I'm fine. I don't even know what I'm doing here. Why did I come? I know there's brunch somewhere after. I guess I'll go along to church today. Okay, but I don't really need this. Christianity is a neat thing for needy people. But my 401k is in good shape and I live in the right neighborhood and I've got a great education and I've got, I've got a good job. Things are solid in my life. I'm fine. How you doing? I'm doing. <laughs> but did you see who Jesus said you need a new birth to? Not some guy in need. He said it to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was part of the ruling group of Jerusalem. He was extraordinarily well-educated. He would have been socially elevated. He was wealthy. He was powerful. In modern terms, he was, he was Ivy League educated. He was Wall Street wealthy. He was K Street connected. This was a guy with power. And Jesus looked at the guy who had everything and said, you need a new life. You need a new birth. Because the greatest need in every life is not physical or intellectual or volitional or sexual. The greatest need in every life is the forgiveness of sins. Because we can't cleanse ourselves. Out, out, damn it, spot. Who will deal with it? Can what is done be undone? And we wake up every day with the envy. We wake up every day with the anger. We wake up every day with the driving ambition. And then suddenly Jesus becomes real. And we realize we can live for what's to come. Benjamin Franklin wrote an epitaph for his tombstone. It was never used, but it's really good. And it is a great summary of this living hope that we have about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which means not only that he's been raised from the dead and we're forgiven and he's with us, but that our resurrection is coming too. Here's how Franklin put it. The body of B. Franklin, printer, like the cover of an old book, its contents torn out and stripped of its lettering and gilding, lies here. Food for worms. But the work shall not be lost, for it will, as he believed, appear once more 
in a new and more elegant edition revised and corrected by the author. How many of you are looking forward to the revised and corrected edition? I'm looking forward to that. It's going to have hair. Mine will have hair. I buried three friends this last year, fellow elders, wonderful servants of Jesus, dear friends. I will see them again. We will be stripped of all of our imperfections. There's so many, I don't know if we'll recognize each other. <laughs> but you know what? We have this hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. We have the knowledge that our sins are forgiven, that he's with us in every fiery trial, and that he is coming again for us, and he will make us completely new. This mortal will be swallowed up by immortality. And so my friend, let me ask you today, have you put your trust in Jesus? You see, that's the response Peter calls for. He says here in verse eight, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Can I ask you, why did we sing? Why do you sing? And maybe this morning you didn't have a song. Maybe you don't know this joy we're talking about. You can. You can know that your conscience is clean, that your sins are forgiven. You can know that when you come to the end of your life, you're going to have eternal life. You can know, not guess, not wonder, know that he is with you in every fiery trial. How? Not by seeing him. You're not going to get this by a scientific experiment. The resurrection cannot be reproduced in a lab. You're not going to get it through philosophy. Paul said that. Roman and Greek philosophy wanted nothing to do with the resurrection. It didn't value the human body. No, you get this by believing the words of the witnesses. They were there, and they sealed their testimony with their blood. And so this morning, you are an assembled jury, which must now render a verdict. They have presented their testimony. Jesus is alive. This changes everything. And this morning, I invite you to put your life in the hands of someone who loved you so much that he died for you to forgive you. He paid that price. Who loved you so much that he rose so you could have a new life. Who loves you so much, he prayed this, Father, I desire that all those whom you have given me may be with me where I am. He wants us to be with him in glory and he will come for us. He loves you. He doesn't want heaven without you. I don't want earth without him. Receive him this morning. Trust in Christ. You don't see him, but you believe him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords, Savior, we put our trust in you. Though we cannot see you, we believe you. We put our trust in you, almighty Savior. Forgive our sins. Cast aside our doubts and fears. And renew in us the living hope of our inheritance in heaven. We bless your name and give you praise, O risen Savior, Lion of the tribe of Judah, destroyer of death. May your name be praised now and evermore. And all God's people said, Amen, amen and amen.